Continue standing and turn to Micah chapter 6. It's actually not far back from Matthew uh, in the very end of the Old Testament on page 779. If you have one of the Pew Bibles, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we have some on the back table. Feel free to go grab one uh, as we work through Micah 6 and 7. Please pay attention this morning to the reading of God's holy word. Again, Micah chapter 6 and 7. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Baor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice? And to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear the rod of rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness and the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence, your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve, and what you preserve I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine, for you have kept the statutes of Omri, and all the works of the house of Ahab. And you have walked in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation, and your inhabitants a hissing. So you shall bear the scorn of my people. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, and when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie and wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus, they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment, has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt, 
The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. A day for the building of your walls. In that day, the boundaries shall be far extended. In that day, they will come to you from Assyria and from the cities of Egypt and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its, uh, because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the day of old, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt. I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like, a craw like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God. They shall be in fear of you. Who is, like, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we confess that we are forgetful people. We so easily forget your great love toward us. We so easily forget all that you have done for us. We pray now in your word that you would remind us. Open our eyes. Open our hearts, our minds, and our ears so that we would hear from you, that we would know the gospel more deeply, and that we would see Jesus Christ more clearly. We pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. There we go. You may be seated. Sorry. <laughs> You know the routine. You don't need me to tell you to be seated after that prayer, do you? Well, do past events have present implications? Yes. Past events have present implications. I think we are tempted to believe that we are disconnected from the past, that we are each the author of our own individual destinies. We think that we can transcend the past, that maybe the past is of little significance or importance. But if we believe that, we are naive. Now, we can think about the impact of the past on the present 
at a cultural level and at an individual level. At a cultural level, think about the United States of America. We can ask questions like, how have events like the Civil War or changing immigration patterns or the Great Depression or the Civil Rights Movement or any number of events in our country's history, how have these past events shaped who we are now as Americans, as those who live in this country, who we are, how we act, how we treat one another, how have these past events shaped us collectively? We can also look at that question individually. How have the events in my own life, my birth, my upbringing, my parents, any number of events, how have these shaped who I am, how I live, what I believe? We are shaped by the past in significant ways. Now, for many of us, recalling our own past and how it has shaped us can bring up hurt or fear or shame. Now, in that case, we need to be reminded that part of the good news of Christianity is that if you belong to Jesus, your past does not ultimately define you anymore. You are now defined by who you are in Jesus. But it is also imperative for us to recognize that the reality that our past does not any longer define us is completely dependent upon the fact that somebody else's past does now define us. In a very real way, our present identities and the day-to-day practical outworking of the Christian life flows directly out of a specific event in human history in the life of an individual, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel, the good news about Jesus, is at its core a message of something that has been accomplished in the past, something which is done, something in the words of Jesus. It is finished. Yet it's also the case that this finished, accomplished event has necessary present implications for us, for our identity, and for our lives. A great quote that we like to share in our membership class is by Tim Keller, and he reminds us that the gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian life. The gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The gospel is not something that impacts us only at our conversion. It's not something that we can then, after our conversion, quickly move on to other things now because, you know, we're right with God. I can do what I want. I can be who I want. That conversion has happened. I believed in Jesus. I prayed the prayer. That's in the past. No, the gospel continues to impact us, inform us, and shape us as the people of God. And that means that one of the most significant threats in the Christian life is what you could call gospel amnesia. Our tendency to so quickly forget what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And then our subsequent failure to live out the implications of that in our day-to-day lives. The big idea that we see in Micah 6 and 7 is rather simple. We ought to live now in light of God's redeeming work in the gospel. We ought to live now in light of God's redeeming work 
in the gospel. We're going to look particularly in these two chapters at two major implications of the gospel for our lives. We're going to look at chapter 6 and then chapter 7. Now in chapter 6, we see the first gospel implication that we must love God and love others. We must love God and love others. Chapter 6 is very much like what we have seen throughout the book of Micah. It shows us a courtroom scene. We see all of the elements of a courtroom going on here. We have a judge. We have a prosecuting attorney. We have witnesses. We have defendants. There is a crime that has been committed. There is a sentence that, that then is given to the defendants when they are found guilty. And that is all throughout chapter 6. We see in verses 1 and 2, the judge calling the prosecuting attorney to make a case against Israel with the mountains acting as witnesses. Arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. So Micah, the prophet, is being called as a prosecuting attorney. Now, if you remember back to our introduction to the minor prophets, this shouldn't surprise you. Perhaps the primary call of the minor prophets was to act as covenant lawyers who brought a case against God's people for their unfaithfulness to God. So again, it shouldn't surprise us that Micah here is being called as this prosecuting attorney on behalf of God. We see again these mountains being called as witnesses. I think the significance is brought forward for us in that when they're called the enduring foundations of the earth. The mountains are these things, if you've ever spent time in the mountains, whether just hiking or traveling in Colorado or out in the Appalachians, they're these things that seem so permanent, so strong, things that, of course, change over time with erosion and other things. But from our perspective, they seem unchanging and unchangeable, firm mountains and foundations of the earth which is so contrasted with the people of Israel in the book of Micah. These mountains are firm, but the people of God go back and forth between saying, we're going to follow you, God, but then running from him and forgetting. So it's proper that these mountains are called as witnesses against the people of God. So then Micah, the prosecuting attorney, he opens up God's case against Israel in verse 3. And he opens up his case with two questions. He starts speaking on behalf of God, oh, my people. Now, just for a moment, in those two words, uh, those three words, oh, my people, don't we hear something of the love of God for his people, even while he's bringing this case against them? It's kind of like what we saw in Matthew 23 with Jesus saying, oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, how, how often I would have gathered you, but you would not have it. We see that same heart of God here. Even as he's bringing this case against them, he's saying, oh, my people, my people, the ones who I love, have you forgotten? What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. Apparently, God's people had grown tired with God. They've, they'd grown dissatisfied with God. They're like the Israelites who, after leaving Egypt, complained to God and said, wasn't it better when we were back in Egypt? 
God, wasn't it easier then? Why have you brought us out here to die? They had forgotten what God had just done for them in delivering them out of Egypt. And that's what we see God reminding them, these Israelites of, in verse 4, the same exact reality. For I brought you up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. So God had brought them out of bondage, right? And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. God had provided leaders for his people, priests, prophets. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Baor, advised him. So this is God protecting his people from a wicked king who wished evil upon them. So God not only delivered them, he then protected them even through their time in the wilderness. And it says, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal? Shittim is the last encampment of Israel before they crossed over the Jordan River. And they crossed through, not over, through the Jordan River at Gilgal. So this is a reminder of God bringing his people into the promised land. So his reminder here is of the whole process from the exodus from Egypt all the way towards God establishing his people in the land. God had been so faithful to his people. And he's saying, have you forgotten, Israel? Have you forgotten all that I have done for you? But then Israel brings their defense back to the Lord in verses 6 and 7. With what shall I come before the Lord? And bow myself before God on high. Essentially, their defense is them asking, what do you want from me? God, what do you want from me? Then they list off these escalating sacrifices, right? Do you want burnt offerings? Year-old calves? Thousands of rams? Ten thousands of rivers of oil? My firstborn child? God, you demand too much from me. God, what do you want? It seems like I can't please you. I can't make you happy with all of these things, God. But then God gives his famous response in verse 8. To their question of what do you want from me? He says, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you. But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. It's a verse that has been seared into my memory as it's, I think, my mom's favorite verse, a verse I've heard over and over and over again. And it's great to hear these words and then to ask in this context, what does it mean to actually do these things? What is God calling us to when he says to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? In the context, we can contrast these things first with what Israel was seeking to do to please God. They thought that God wanted ritual. When they thought of God's case against them, they thought, I need to go do these things. I need to sacrifice these things. I need to make these offerings. But God shows us that ritual, which is separated from our hearts and from our lives, is not what God desires. Right away, this should remind us of a similar statement again that we saw in our New Testament reading in Matthew 23, 23, where Jesus says to the Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. 
These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So we see here from Jesus that it's not religious ritual itself that is wrong, but again, when it's separated from a life of justice, mercy, and faithfulness, that it's an offense to God, that it can never satisfy our God. God desires our whole heart. He desires our whole life, a life that is committed to loving God and loving others. Let's dive into those three commands a little bit. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with our God. The first two, justice and kindness, are central aspects of loving others, something that God calls us to. And then the third one is a reference to loving God. But what does it mean to do justice? What does that actually mean? Justice and injustice are words that we hear a lot these days, that many different people have different opinions on what they mean. So when we see this word here in Micah 6, 8, we need to not let the cultural views of justice or our personal views of justice be imported into the definition of justice here. Let's look at what this text tells us it means to do justice, because this passage does actually give us a picture of what it means. And the way it teaches us what it means to do justice is by giving us a picture of what injustice looks like. God gives us a negative picture and says, don't do these things. And through that, we learn what is it that we should actually do. And we see that in verses 9 through 16. Those verses which end out chapter 6 function as God's sentence against them. He declares in verses 9 through 12 the crime that they have been found guilty of. And then in verses 13 through 16, he declares their punishment for their crime. But what does injustice look like in these passages, in these verses here? It looks like dishonesty and corruption for personal gain at the expense of other people, particularly the most weak and vulnerable in our world. Look at verse 10 here. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. This is a picture of dishonest business practices. Businessmen having two different scales, one for when they were buying things and one for when they were selling things so that they could exploit either the person that was selling to them or the person that was buying from them. But they would get the most that they possibly could for their goods. And the purpose of that was so that they could fill their own bank accounts with their money, which clearly does not impress the Lord. Can I forget the treasures of, the, of wickedness in the house of the wicked, the Lord says? They were using their riches and their power and influence to take property and possessions from others. We've seen this throughout the book of Micah. And then when they're confronted with it, what do they do? We see in chapter 7, verse 3, they bribe the judges so that they can get a favorable ruling. This is a picture of injustice. And this also shows us then what justice means. That it involves fairness in legal proceedings, as well as honesty and integrity in our lives, in our work, in our businesses. 
seeking to help and benefit other people, especially those who are most weak and vulnerable, instead of using our possessions and our position to get ahead at the expense of other people. This command to do justice has implications for our everyday lives. This isn't just a command for Sunday mornings when we gather to worship. This is a command for our everyday nine to five work week, for the way that we lead our families, the way that we conduct our business and our finances. This command teaches us that there is such a thing as Christian marketplace ethics. The world around you tells you to get ahead. It tells you to earn more, to buy more, to climb that ladder, to get that bigger house, that nicer car. But what does God prioritize for us? He says, pursue integrity, pursue honesty, pursue fairness out of a concern for others and not a concern for yourselves. We also learn in these verses what God's punishment or sentence is for this kind of injustice in verses 13 through 16. And God's judgment is that their pursuit of unjust gain will be fruitless in the end. Notice if you look at these verses with me, there's a repetition going on. The repetition of a phrase, you shall, but not. You shall eat, but not be satisfied. You shall put away, but not preserve. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. All of these things are the result that they would think that they are going to receive from their work. They're going to tread the grapes, but they're not going to get the result of it. They're not going to get to enjoy the wine. They're going to tread olives, but they're not going to get The oil, they're going to put away money, but that money is going to fade and not preserve. God's sentence for their injustice was that they would never truly obtain what they were seeking by their injustice. Their efforts would always end up being fruitless and worthless. Corrupt ethics may seem to get you ahead in this life, and they may temporarily get you ahead in this life but they never truly eternally will. God's wisdom is that the more that you pursue joy and satisfaction in these ways, the more they're going to leave you empty. In a way, it's kind of like salt water for a parched sailor who is adrift out at sea. After days and weeks without water, as you're sitting there only maybe drinking what what rains upon your little life raft. You look around right out at the sea, surrounded by all of this water. And eventually it looks really appetizing for you. You think maybe this will quench my thirst. Maybe this will satisfy me. But if you drink that water, it's not going to quench your thirst. In fact, it's going to dehydrate you instead of rehydrate you. And eventually that salt water will kill you. Instead of running to earthly joy at the expense of others, let us instead run after God who does satisfy us. And let us, with true justice, seek the good of our neighbor. So we see that God calls his people to love others by doing justice. And then also, in verse 8, by loving kindness. And what does that mean? 
Well, the word kindness here is hesed, a common word throughout the Old Testament, a word that is often used to describe God's mercy and steadfast love toward his people. So what this is telling us is that we should show the same kind of mercy and kindness to others that God has shown to us in the gospel. God has been kind to us. We ought to be kind to other people. And then lastly, in verse 8, we're called to love God, to walk humbly with your God. God redeems us, we see here, for the purpose of fellowship and relationship with him. We were made to walk with our God. We were made to know him and to love him, not just to do ritual on a Sunday morning, but to do all these things so that we would pursue God, that we would get him, we would see him and know him and walk with him. And the emphasis here is on walking humbly with God. This is an attitude of submission and lowliness as we walk with our God, submitting to his will, desiring what he desires, loving what he loves, putting ourselves under God as our king and walking humbly with him. So to summarize chapter six in a nutshell, the gospel has implications for how we love God and how we love others. In this chapter, what is Israel's primary issue? Their primary issue is that they had forgotten God's redemption and its implications in their lives. God's command in verse 5 to remember is essential here because it shows us that they had forgotten. You could say that they suffered from gospel amnesia, which wreaked havoc on their practical, ethical lives. They forgot the essence of the gospel that had been pictured to them through the Exodus, that God saves us by his grace alone so that we might live as his redeemed people now, loving God and loving others. Instead, in the midst of their forgetfulness of the gospel, they lived as if they could do whatever they wanted Monday through Friday, or in their case, Sunday through Friday and the Sabbath on Saturday. They could live however they wanted to live with their lives as long as they appeased God by doing their ritual and offering their sacrifice. And don't we often treat church this way? We want to live the way we want to live Monday through Saturday. And we think that this is just going to be this quick fix. But again, the gospel is not salvation by ritual, but salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, so that we might live the glory of God alone, loving God and loving others. So the first gospel implication, chapter six, is that we must love God and love others. And we see our second gospel implication in chapter seven, that we must and can, maybe can is a better word here, we can have hope in a fallen world. We can have hope in a fallen world. I love chapter seven because it contains two songs. I love singing. The first song is in verses one through seven, and it's a song of lament. Micah laments the spiritual state of God's people, and he gives us here a gardening image or an agricultural image to describe this spiritual state. In verse one, he talks about the fruit has been gathered. The grapes have been gleaned. There is nothing left. 
If you like gardening, maybe this will make sense to you. Late summer, you walk through your garden and the tomato plants are up above your head and they're just full of these plump, ripe red tomatoes and cucumbers galore. They're coming out your ears and you walk through your garden, you smell the fresh herbs. But then just a few months later, you walk through your garden and what's left? Well, you've picked all the tomatoes. You've picked all the cucumbers. All that is left is these dry, brown, lifeless vines and dead plants lying on the ground. And this is what Micah is using to describe the people of God. Like he's walking through this garden and it's all gone. It's all dead. It's all lifeless. And he says, the godly, in the same way as this garden, the godly has perished from the earth. There is no one upright among mankind. Doesn't that sound like Psalm 14, which Paul quotes in Romans chapter 3, there is no one who is righteous? No, not one. He looks around at the world. Is there any godly left? He says, no. We've already talked about their moral corruption and what that meant. So I'm not going to dive into all of the detail of these verses, but just look at one of these with me. Look at verse three. At the very beginning of verse three, it says, their hands are on what is evil to do it well. This is significant. Not only that they're doing evil, but that they love doing evil. And they want to do their evil well. They're saying, if I'm going to be good at one thing in my life, I want to be really good at doing bad. You know, I, I want to be skilled, like a trained musician who spends every day playing their instrument so they can get better and better. They are scheming. They are training. They're thinking, how can I get better at what I'm already doing that is wicked so that I can get more and more? And this corruption in God's people leads to a total breakdown in society, and in families. Look at verses five and six. It says, put no trust in a neighbor, have no confidence in a friend. So this is starting with farther out relationships, moving closer in neighbors, and it moves to those close to your friends, and then it moves even closer. It says, guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. Essentially, husbands, it's not just your neighbors and your friends, it's going to be your wife. Wife, it's going to be your husband. For the son treats father with contempt. The daughter rises up against mother, the daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. The breakdown of family relationships. And this isn't just for Micah's day. This is for our day as well. Doesn't Jesus promise us something like this if we're going to follow him in Matthew chapter 10? He says, brother will rise up, brother will deliver brother over to death and father his children and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Jesus says, this is gonna be a reality for you in this life. Now imagine how Micah feels. And I think we can feel it too. He looks around at a world and says, things are so broken. Is there any hope? He looks around at family relationships and he sees breakdown and we can look down, look around at our world and see there's so much pain. There's so much brokenness, so much fallenness. Is there any hope? And Micah cries out. He laments to God. Woe is me. But then he turns us to hope at the end of this first song in verse seven. And we might lament along with Micah. It's very easy to lament the state of our world. But do we also join Micah in his hope here? And he has hope in two different ways. First, by looking to God, and second, by waiting for God. He says, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. 
I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. What are these two things? Looking to the Lord. That's faith, trusting God, taking our eyes away from only ever looking at the things that raise our blood pressure and cause anxiety, right? All of that stuff in our life, all of that messiness. He says, lift your eyes, take it above it, look to the Lord, trust in God, trust in his character, trust in him. And it also says to wait for the Lord. Now, does that mean just like sit on your hands and do nothing? No, we actually learn in this verse what waiting on the Lord looks like. He says, I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Now, what does my God will hear me imply that he is doing as he is waiting? He's praying. His waiting is an active waiting. He's crying out to the Lord. And this means that waiting on God, when we see this pop up around in scripture, is less like waiting in a dentist's office. And it's more like a child in the backseat of a van in a long road trip. You know, that the child who is crying out, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Now, I'm not saying that God wants us to be impatient in our waiting, maybe like a smaller child, but he does want us to cry out to him, to ask him, how long, O oh Lord? How much longer? Come, Lord Jesus. Come deliver us. He wants us to be vocal in our waiting. He wants us to cry out in prayer. So let's do that. Let's look to God with Micah. Let's call out to God with Micah in the midst of our hopelessness and find hope. And it's with this hope that Micah's song then turns from a song of lament and it turns to the second song in chapter seven, a song of praise, a song of praise that is rooted for Micah in future hope as he's looking forward, rooted in the gospel. Verses 8 through 17 show us a, a glimpse of this future hope. And then verses 18 through 20 give us the anchor of that hope, the reason for that hope. Verses 8 through 17, I wish we could dive in deep to every one of these images here. We're going to study these verses in our community group. Okay, so you will have community group, so you will have time to dive into these more if you want. Let's just look very very quickly skim over these verses and get the, the, the sense of what they're saying to us. So in verses 8 through 17, these verses focus on the present reality of persecution and pain that will one day be overturned. So it's this overturning of present circumstances that is the foundation for his hope. In verse 8, there's overturning is the hope of the fallen who rise, right? And the light who comes into darkness, okay? So it's overturning, fallen, who rise, light into darkness. Then in verse 8, we see Micah representing the faithful remnant of God's people, confessing his sin, acknowledging the present discipline of God, but then hoping in God's salvation and God's vindication.
Verses 14 and 17, a cry for God to shepherd his people by providing for them. Verses 14 and then verses 15 through 17, protecting them through the defeat of his enemies. And he describes this in the same way that God cursed upon Satan in Genesis chapter 3, and shows ritual deaths like a serpent. Ultimately, Micah here is looking forward to a future hope of both judgment and deliverance. And it's here that we see the anchor for Micah's hope at the end of this passage. He also hears the speech of Grandma about it. Yeah, I'll talk about it. So I want you to hear that. Last verse. We see Micah's anchor for his hope, verses 18 through 20. His hope is anchored in God's character and God's covenant promises. Who is a God like you? Play on words. Micah's name means who is like the Lord. So he just end of his book and begins. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He is not retaining his anger forever because he delights steadfast love. Think about that. Not only is God full of steadfast love, he delights in steadfast love. Doesn't that tell us something amazing about the heart of God? God is just. There is punishment for the wicked, but we see in Scripture that God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but we hear, what does God delight in here? What does God love doing? God loves showering his steadfast love upon his people. Continuing, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You'll cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You'll show faithfulness to Jacob the steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers in the days of old. He ends there with hope in God's faithfulness and his promises to Jacob and to Abraham. We should remember the faithfulness of our God, even as we remember our own tendency towards faithlessness. Our God is faithful. He does not forget, even when we fail to remember. The gospel not only has implications for our obedience, it has implications for the way that we hope in the midst of the fallen world. The large flow of these two chapters is a is a transition from punishment in chapter 6 to pardon in chapter 7. And this shows us the essence of the good news of the gospel. The gospel is a message of punishment to pardon. The message of a sentence which is overturned on our behalf. Look with me to verse 9 in chapter 7. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. This is the overturning of the sentence against us. In chapter 6, God commissioned Micah as this prosecuting attorney to bring his case against his people. But here we see in chapter 7, a defense attorney is appointed on our behalf. And who is that defense attorney who pleads our cause? It's God himself who rises up, who pleads our cause on our behalf. God is our defense attorney. 
But what is it takes that he makes to overturn our sentence? Well, there are two allusions that we see to the Exodus in verses 18 through 20. Two allusions to the Exodus. There are many in this passage before 18 through 20. Again, we don't have time to look at them all. Let's look at these two here. In verse 19, we see that God will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. What does that remind us of? How God cast the Egyptian army into the, into the Red Sea as he delivered his people. What this reminds us of is that our greatest enemy is not the Egyptians. Our greatest enemy is not our culture, not any physical enemy. Our greatest enemy is not even the devil himself. Our greatest enemy that needs to be defeated is our sin. And it is God who forgives our sin. The Psalm 103 3 reminds us that God casts our sin as far as the east is from the west. But how does God defeat our sin and forgive our sin? The other allusion to the Exodus is in verse 18, when God says that he passes over transgression. What does that remind us of? The God who passes over reminds us of the Passover, when God's judgment and God's wrath pass over his people. Why did his wrath pass over his people? Because of the blood of the Lamb on the doorpost. Salvation through the wrath of God can only come through the blood of the Lamb. Our sentence is overturned because Jesus took our sentence upon himself. Jesus is our defense attorney. He is the one who pleads our cause. And the case that he makes is his own blood. Before the throne of God above, I have strong and a perfect plea. Defense attorney. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me that's his heart. When Satan tempts me to despair, tells me of the guilt within, upward I look, and I see him there who made an end to all my sins. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied. To look on him and to pardon me. Pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for not leaving us in our sins, but sending a Savior who would come and in our place live, die, shed his own blood, rise from the dead, and ascend to heaven, who now, after very throne and in your presence, pleads our case. The case of his own blood. Again, Father, we pray that you would help us to not be forgetful, but to remember this good news of the gospel, so that we would live now with lives of love and fear in our neighbor, and lives of hope in the midst of a fallen world. And for this, we ask for help in your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.